A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, a retrospective series on the most extraordinary riders, races and stories in cycling history. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In our previous episode of Recycle, we recalled rookie Frenchman Eric Caratou's unlikely Vuelta victory in 1984, topping the general classification by just six seconds. It was the narrowest win in Grand Tour history. This time out, we're riding high with Spanish climber Jose Maria Jimenez and his stage win on the inaugural ascent of the fearsome Onglaru in 1999. It may lack the history of the so-called Dutch mountain, but it's often said that the Onglaru can become to the Vuelta España what Alpe d'Huez is to the Tour de France. Such has been the impact of this savagely steep climb southwest of the city of Oviedo, in Spain's lush green mountainous north, the 12.5-kilometre test, which peaks at 1,570 metres and boasts an average gradient well into double figures, has fast become a fan favourite. Ranked among the hardest uphill tests in pro cycling, the Onglaru is not without its detractors. Some say it's too steep, others that it's merely a gimmick, synonymous with the way the Vuelta organisers, Unipublic, have favoured shock tactics over balanced route planning. Similarities perhaps better lie with the Italian climbs of the Mortarolo or Zoncalan, the latter an arduous ascent first introduced to the Giro in 2003 as a direct response to the Onglaru's maiden appearance in the Vuelta four years earlier. The winner of the first two stages up the Zoncalan was Gilberto Simoni, the same Italian who won on the Onglaru's second finish in the year 2000. But this is not Simoni's story. Instead, we're looking back to that sodden first Onglaru ascent when Jimenez emerged miraculously through the fog and rain to beat Pavel Tonkov amid controversy and confusion. Eager to add to their roster a climb to rival Alpe d'Huez or Mont Ventoux in the Tour, or the Giro's Mortarolo, the Vuelta organisers were on the hunt for a showpiece summit finish in the mid-90s as they endeavoured to broaden the appeal of a race still viewed as the least compelling of the three Grand Tours. Unipublic hoped to add something that could quickly attain the same reputation, resonance and toughness as the ascent to Lagos de Covadonga, the Asturian climb that had been successfully introduced in 1983. In the event, 
they didn't have to look far. In his book Mountain High, the author and cycling journalist Daniel Freeb explains how a tip from a figure dubbed the blind visionary did not fall on deaf ears. Miguel Prietro, the partially sighted communications director of ONCE, the Spanish charity for the blind and sponsor of a top cycling team, had just the ticket. In 1996, the Asturian wrote to the organisers. There exists in Asturias, in the middle of the Sierra del Aramo, in the municipality of Riosa, around 15 kilometres from Oviedo, a mountain whose road is barely marked on maps because it's a cattle road that was only recently paved. This mountain is known as Le Gomanal, and its altitude is 1,570 metres. The climb is 12 kilometres long and ascends just over 1,200 metres in altitude, which gives it an average gradient of slightly above 10%, higher than the well-known Higa de Montreal. Please note, in fact, that the last 7 kilometres of the climb have an average gradient of above 13%, dotted with multiple ramps at 20, 18, 17 and even 23.5%. This ascent, if ever used, is guaranteed to leave unforgettable memories burnt into the retinas of the viewers. Just as people have said the Lagos de Covadonga will become the Spanish Alpes so the Gamonal could equal and, no exaggeration, eclipse the Italian Mortarolo. Perhaps attracted by the severe 23.5% section of the Cuena de las Cabres, three kilometres from the summit, coupled with a consistent gradient barely dropping below double digits, the organisers were quick to react. The road was paved in 1997 and then, two years later, unveiled on the Vuelta as the Onglaru. While local rider Samuel Sanchez would later label it the perfect climb, the Onglaru was not exactly welcomed with open arms by the sport. The Italian climber Leonardo Piepolo was one of the first riders to recce the climb in 1999, instantly labelling it impossible. Critics said this was a lame attempt to revive the Vuelta, and indeed cycling in Spain, with silly gimmickry, writes Freeb, recalling the reaction of the Kelme team manager Vincente Belda. What do they want? Blood? They ask us to stay clean and avoid doping, and then they make the riders tackle this kind of barbarity. The Italian Marzio Brusegin, who was in his first year as a pro at the Spanish Bonesto team, chipped in, What's the point of riding up a mountain that I'd be quicker to go up by foot? Even Pedro Delgado, working as a TV pundit five years after hanging up his cycling shoes, had his say after giving it a go. There were moments on the climb when I felt as if time had stopped, said the double Vuelta winner. You're pedalling like mad, but every time you look up, you don't seem to have advanced much. It's like one of those dreams where you're running but not getting anywhere. When you reach the false flat, after six kilometres, there are words painted on the road warning of what's to come. Hell starts here, they say. It does indeed. From this point, the average gradient is a fiendish 13.1% and includes that savage ramp of almost 24%. But as Freeb explains in Mountain High, for every former French pro like Patrice Horgand, who complained, on the Anglerou, the guys go too pitifully for the climb to have any sporting interest. Even the winner goes up in slow motion. There's no attacking. There has been a Charlie Motte, the former tour star turned racecourse inspector, 
who said, I think it's good for cycling. I'm in favour of these extraordinary difficulties, these extreme gradients. The steepness doesn't shock me because there is always a solution in choosing the right gears. The debate about brutal gradients nullifying the ability for the riders to actually race often overlooks what Freeb describes as the smouldering emerald beauty of the Onglaru, with its unique meteorological system, jagged rocks, green pastures, grazing cows, and staggered horizons piling up, on a clear day, all the way to the Bay of Biscay. In the words of the Swiss Triple Vuelta winner Tony Rominger, who had the good fortune of retiring two years before the inaugural ascent. Climbing the Onglaru is like looking out of the window of a plane. A plane that, in 1999, was heading right through the eye of a storm. So, who was the man who would write himself into the history books as the first winner on the Onglaru? José María Jiménez had already ridden eight Grand Tours before the 1999 Vuelta, most notably finishing eighth in the 1997 Tour de France and being part of an all-Spanish Vuelta podium a year later behind teammate Abraham Alano and Fernando Escartín. Jiménez was that rare breed of riders who spent his entire career at the same team, graduating as a trainee at Benesto with his first professional contract in 1993. His powerful build and climbing ability meant many expected him to follow in the footsteps of teammates Pedro Delgado and Miguel Indurain. But his time trialling left a lot to be desired, and Jimenez was a mercurial, erratic talent who often gave up when the going got tough. The first of his nine Vuelta stages came in 1997, a few months after the 26-year-old was crowned national champion. Nicknamed El Shava, derived from El Shabacano, an endearing term for someone with rustic and humble origins, Jimenez came from El Barraco, a poor village in Castile Leon, in the mountains west of Madrid. Mentored by Victor Sastra, the father of his future brother-in-law Carlos, the 2008 tour winner, Jimenez would, over the course of his career, win the mountains classification of the Vuelta on four occasions. A testament to his fine climbing legs. His standout race came in 1998, when he won four stages and enjoyed two stints in the leader's yellow jersey. On both occasions, he conceded the race lead to teammate Alano after peddling squares in the individual time trials, his Achilles heel. If on his day he was unbeatable, Jimenez's day didn't come often enough and he was deemed too unpredictable to pose a viable threat in stage races, a rider who relied on form, but who had a reputation of being lazy and unambitious. He became renowned for his gung-ho attitude and predilection to attack without considering the consequences, kamikaze moves that occasionally resulted in spectacular wins on tough mountain stages, but which were so often followed by a total crash and burn the next day. As such, the divisive Jimenez had relentless critics and staunch defenders behind him in equal measure. His capriciousness was reflected in his off-the-bike temperament. El Shava was your archetypal go-big-or-go-home kind of guy, a man capable of all-night partying, capped by an ability to drop the world's finest the next day in a way that would have made his contemporary Frank Vandenbroeke proud. You can hear Vandenbroeke's story 
which pivots around his mercurial 1999 Liège-Bastogne-Liège win in Episode 7 of this season's series of Recycle. Chava even once went AWOL ahead of a stage in the Tour of Catalonia, reappearing just before the start in a new Ferrari that he had acquired on a whim. Such indiscipline, coupled with his perpetual struggles against the clock, held him back in filling the shoes of a rider of Indurain's clinical calibre. This partially explains, perhaps, Jimenez's knee-jerk decision to quit the sport in 2001 without warning, aged 30, so soon after capping back-to-back stage wins in the Vuelta with a fourth polka dot jersey and the points classification. As Indurain would later say, he was a rider in the old style. When things went well, they went very well. When things didn't go well, they didn't go at all. He lost a lot due to reasons beyond his control, leaving cycling just like that all of a sudden. The Vuelta's first summit finish on the Anglerou came in stage 8 of the 1999 race at the end of the opening week. Jimenez had already struggled in the stage 6 time trial, finishing 85th in Salamanca on a day his Benesto teammate Abraham Alano took the spoils to move into the race's new golden jersey. Alano, the defending champion, comprehensively beat the German specialist Jan Ulrich by 57 seconds to go 1 minute and 7 seconds ahead of the team telecom rider in the general classification. Ulrich was riding his first and only Vuelta after a knee injury forced him out of defending his Tour de France title in July. The 25-year-old had entered the race to help his return to fitness and prepare for the World Championships in Verona. He never seriously thought he could win the thing. The 176-kilometre 8th stage featured the first category climbs of the Cobertoria and the Cordal before the unveiling of the new climb whose frightful reputation had led many riders to get their mechanics to install triple crank sets or mountain bike cassettes on their bikes. Mother Nature had certainly risen to the occasion, with the entire stage played out in cold rain showers and dense fog, hellish conditions that caused an estimated 90 of the peloton's 171 riders to hit the deck. Alano, the race leader, was one of them. The Spaniard skidding off the road in a tangle with Belgium's Kurt van der Wauer on the treacherous descent of the penultimate climb with around 20 kilometres remaining. At this point, the Moldovan rider Ruslan Ivanov was almost two minutes clear of the race favourites as they hurtled towards the start of the decisive climb. An estimated 120,000 rain-soaked fans had gathered on the Anglerou to watch the Sufferfest. The majority gathered on the steepest section, where numerous riders were expected to walk up the 20% pitches. But by the time the Anglerou raised its fearsome head, a selection had already been made with Ivanov being pursued by a group featuring Ulrich, Kelme duo Roberto Arras and Jose Rubiera, the Russian Pavel Tonkov of Mapai, and our man Jimenez. Behind, the Spanish national champion Angel Casero chased, with the gold jersey of Alano being paced back into contention by his Anse teammate Mikel Zarabieta and the fresh-faced Italian David Rebelin of Polti. Tonkov, the 1996 Giro champion, made his move early on the climb, catching Ivanov after five kilometres as the road flattened out ahead of the brutal finale. This was the Moldovan's cue to sink like a stone. Ivanov eventually finished the stage more than seven minutes down, 
in 27th place. With six kilometers remaining, as the battling Alano finally made the connection with the leaders, Eras upped the tempo to put Ulrich against the ropes and coax a few jabs from Jimenez. Fifth and sixth in his previous Vuelta appearances, the 25-year-old Arras had been elevated to Kelme team leader over the course of the afternoon, after a crash had forced the withdrawal of compatriot Fernando Escartin, runner-up for the past two years. As Harass and Jimenez rode clear, Ulrich and Alano formed a truce. It didn't last long. Churning a ridiculous gear in defiance of both the gradient and his recovering knee, Ulrich was dropped by Alano with three kilometres remaining, just ahead of the savage Coena de las Cabras section. Alano's performance was admirable considering he had cracked a rib in his earlier crash and was probably riding on adrenaline alone. It was here, with around 2.5 kilometres remaining, that Jimenez made his move, dispatching Arras to the gloom amid the frenzied cheers of the sodden spectators lining the road. Approaching the two-kilometre barrier, with the gradient marked as 21%, Jimenez put in a large out-of-the-saddle surge in a finale that became increasingly hard to follow for the millions of fans at home. Thick fog, rain on the camera lens, glare from the clouds and regular interruptions of static fuzz and white noise from the broadcast outage, all this contributed to the general confusion, with even the commentators unsure how the race was unfolding. With 1.5 kilometres remaining, Jimenez still trailed Tonkov by 40 seconds as he passed the Russian's Mapai team car. As the Spaniard approached another stationary car, which seemed to be blocking his way, the increasingly erratic broadcast shifted to the camera following Tonkov. Then, yet more fuzz. Suddenly, as the road flattened and then dropped following the summit, Jimenez appeared on Tonkov's wheel, much to the bafflement of the commentators. In the event, the victory was something of an anti-climax, the fixed camera at the finish a haze of mist and glaring headlights from vehicles with nowhere to go. When the two riders were finally picked up on the screen, they had already crossed the line and Jimenez had rolled over a bike length clear, unable, or perhaps unwilling, to celebrate. Eighteen years later, on the eve of the Vuelta's seventh finish on the Onglaru, the Spanish newspaper El Pais wrote, When El Shava Jimenez emerged from the fog on the Onglaru in 1999, the myth of the Vuelta was created. The retrospective piece spoke of the rain, wind, cold and fog as all the ingredients that blinded the television, obscured it in a black fuzz of adjustment until the headlights of the cars appeared to cast a Chinese shadow across the steep ramps. Such conditions contributed to the doubts that still lingered, the paper said. The Russian Tonkov was ahead, then, suddenly, flapping through that inhospitable place, like Diogenes with his lamp, El Shava appeared and beat him to the line in a way that recast this epic tale as something not just from a mystery novel, but a crime novel too. The insinuations were clear. There were suspicions, the paper said playing on its Cluedo metaphor, not that the assassin was the butler, but that El Shava had held on to the cars to help him climb while taking advantage of the cloak of anonymity offered by the fog. Tonkov was up in arms, but nothing was ever proven. 
While some fans said they witnessed Jimenez with the candlestick in the library, so to speak, others said they saw nothing untoward. Whatever went down that day, there is certainly a delicious irony that the first winner on a climb discovered by a blind man was a rider who allegedly benefited from the TV cameras and spectators being blinded by the fog to hold on to a car up the steepest, most feared part of the ascent. So, what happened next? Jimenez showed his class by finishing third in three of the remaining mountain stages of the 1999 Vuelta, on his way to a top-five finish in Madrid. It was the German juggernaut Ulrich who took home the Vuelta's first jersey de oro, despite conceding just over a minute to Alano on the Onglerou. Alano's fifth place on the Vuelta's newest summit finish saw him extend his lead to two minutes and eight seconds on Ulrich, but it came at a cost, namely that broken rib. A few days later, Alano imploded on stage 12 to Andorra, the crocked Spaniard coming home more than eight minutes down to relinquish the lead to Ulrich and plummet down the standings. After shipping another seven minutes in stage 13, the defending champion withdrew. After a final week of the race that saw a resplendent Frank van den Brucker at the peak of his powers, yet on the edge of the abyss, swashbuckle himself to a brace of wins, Ulrich capped his Vuelta with a commanding performance in the final time trial. Beating his nearest rival by 2 minutes and 50 seconds, Ulrich ended up 4 minutes 15 seconds in front of Igor González de Galdino with Eras completing the final podium ahead of Tonkov and Jiménez. Eras's time would come. The Spaniard would win the 2000 Vuelta before adding another three titles in what remains a record haul to this day. Jimenez dedicated his victory on the Onglerou to his close friend Marco Pantani, the disgraced Italian climber on a self-imposed exile after being booted out of the Giro months earlier, following his fourth stage win at Madonna di Campiglio. You can hear more about Pantani's disgrace and downfall in episode 9, of this season's series. As it happened, it was Pantani who denied Jimenez his best chance of a stage win at the Tour de France a year later on stage 15 to Courcheval, the Italian riding clear of Jimenez, Eras, and eventual but asterisked winner Lance Armstrong in the Alps. The year 2000 was not kind to Jimenez. After winning the Volta Catalunya, he failed to click in the Tour before crashing out of the Vuelta in the opening week. In 2001, which would be his last year as a pro, the increasingly non-conformist and renegade Jimenez did not race outside of Spain. A hat-trick of stage wins, including the uphill time trial in Andorra, plus the points and mountains jerseys, saw El Shava leave his mark on what proved to be his final ever race. Living with depression, Jimenez retired at the end of the season. He married the sister of Carlos Sastra, but his personal troubles continued. Following a painful battle with drugs and alcohol, Jimenez checked himself into a clinic for psychological treatment, but died in December 2003 after suffering a heart attack. He was just 32. More than 2,000 people attended his funeral in El Barraco the ABC newspaper entitled its obituary to Jimenez The First Man on the Moon, or at least The Onglerou. 
There was never a more melancholic conqueror for such a malevolent mountain as El Onglaru than its first victor. Like two other icons of Spanish cycling before him, José Manuel Fuente and Luis Ocaña, El Chava's life was cut short in tragic circumstances. Two months after his death, his friend Pantani committed suicide following a cocaine overdose. Vandenbrucker would follow them both by the end of the decade. It was an inevitable death, said Eusebio Unzue, Jimenez's sporting director at Benesto. He had chosen his path. Five years after his brother-in-law passed away, Sastra dedicated his victory in the 2008 tour to the memory of Jimenez. Despite the foul weather and controversy enshrouding the finish, the Onglaru sufficiently justified its hype on its inaugural deployment to be reused again in 2000. This time, Gilberto Simoni soloed to victory. Third in both 1999 and 2000, Eras won as the Vuelta returned in 2002 on another rain-lashed day when Britain's David Miller famously left his bike on the finish line and quit the race in protest at the poor safety conditions. This is inhuman. We're not animals, Miller harumphed after taking issue with the same slippery Cordell descent that had sent Alano sprawling in 1999. Seeing the Mortarolo trumped by the success of the even steeper Onglaru, Giro organisers RSC unveiled their own answer to the double-digit savagery with Monty Zonkalan in 2003 a peak where Simone triumphed on the first two occasions. Sandwiched between two Alberto Contador triumphs on the Onglaru in 2008 and 2017 were wins for another Spaniard, Juanjo Cobo, in 2011, a result that was later overturned and awarded to the Dutchman Wout Poles, and for Frenchman Kenny Elisonde in 2013. Poles finished behind Contador and alongside Sky teammate Chris Froome when the Vuelta last raced up the Onglaru. Now at Bahrain-McLaren, Poles says the Onglaru is most comparable to the Zonkalan for sheer brutality. I've suffered more on other climbs, he says. It's not the hardest when it comes to suffering, but it is when it comes to steepness. If you have good legs, it's not so bad. It's simple why it's so hard. It's just a super steep climb and pretty long. It just keeps ramping up. The middle part, and towards the end, is just so steep, all the time. Winning on the Onglaru was the first and last time Elisande rode the climb. His victory, he says, was the best you can dream of as a climber. He arrived at the foot of the Onglaru in a trance, what he describes as almost a second state, because of the excitement nearly causing him to overshoot a tight corner into the spectators. Like the day Jimenez triumphed, the Onglaru was covered in dense fog in 2013. It was the penultimate day of the race, with the American veteran Chris Horner on the cusp of a surprise overall win. The last man standing from the day's break, Elisande could hear the fans screaming a few hairpins below, but he could see nothing, and his radio wasn't working. I just went full gas in the last few kilometres because I was scared of being caught by a GC guy fighting because it was the final battle of the Vuelta behind, he says. The Frenchman describes the climb as a fight against gravity and puts it alongside the Mortarolo 
as the hardest I have done in my career. It's so steep and you can't recover, says Elisande. It's a constant fight. You even feel it in your arms because it's so steep that to keep the bike straight, you have to force it with every part of your body. Critics of the Onglaru claim its steepness actually levels the playing field, dulling the racing and nullifying any potential threat in the GC battle. But over seven appearances, the average time gap between first and second place on the climb is 52 seconds, compared to 32 seconds on the Zonkalan or 40 seconds on Alpe d'Huez. For the most part, it's true that the Onglaru has had little bearing on the battle for gold or red. But when Juan Ho Kobo rode clear in 2011, Chris Froome was caught in two minds as to whether he should follow the Spaniard or help protect teammate Bradley Wiggins' red jersey. In the event, Wiggins cracked and Froome finished in the wheel of Poles and Denis Menchov in fourth place, 48 seconds down on Kobo, who went on to win the Vuelta, at least until being stripped of the title seven years later, by 13 seconds. Proof, perhaps that the Onglaru made the difference. When Froome won the Vuelta outright in 2017, he and Poles once again finished behind the stage winner in what was arguably the most memorable finish on the Onglaru since Jimenez took the inaugural spoils. On the penultimate day of the race, and on his last competitive day in the pro peloton, Alberto Contador picked up a farewell stage win that could not have been scripted any better. That was definitely one of the most memorable days I had at a bike race, says Trek Segafredo communications director Eva Tomei, who at the time was working for Eurosport Portugal. Everyone knew that Alberto would take the bull by the horns and try one of his trademark attacks to go out with a bang. There was a sense that it was already written in the stars. It was just a matter of bearing witness to it. The kind of apocalyptic weather that we associate with the Onglaru had rolled in with the vehicular access to the summit banned and journalists forced to walk up the steep slopes amid the sea of spectators. Tomei was among them. The weather deteriorated badly, she recalls. Strong winds and relentless rain pounded the summit and destroyed part of the structure of the finishing line. The journalists were all packed inside two precarious plastic tents, the only available shelter at the top. It was freezing. Dense fog moved in and... While the peloton rode in sunshine, we were all questioning whether they would cancel the finish because it was that dramatic at the top. Then came Alberto's attack, and, almost on cue, the weather started to clear. Contador zipped clear with his Colombian teammate Yarlinson Pantano on the long descent ahead of the final climb before picking off the remnants of the day's break, including compatriot Enrique Mass of Quickstep. Pantano went full gas, and then Mass, who was on one of Contador's junior foundation teams, started working for Alberto, recalls Stephen de Jong, the Trek director sportive that day. For Enrique, it was quite an honour for him to give something back and thank Alberto for helping starting his career. It was unexpected, so it was really nice that he did it. Help then came from another Spaniard in the form of Movistar's Marc Soler, who paced his countrymen up some of the steep ramps. With six kilometres remaining, the gap over the red jersey group was only 50 seconds, forcing Contador to strike out on his own. De Jong was following in the Trek team car, grateful he was driving an automatic 
and not burning the clutch on the hairpin bends. If the Anglaroo is hard for the riders, it's not so easy for the drivers either, de Jong quips. We had to drive really slowly. It's virtually a wall, and you can feel the gradient. On some climbs, it's hard to see if the riders are suffering because they go so fast, but on this climb, the riders go so slow and you can almost hear them suffering. There were people everywhere, and it was hard to follow Alberto because the fans were swarming across the road and shouting, Un año más, one more year, because they didn't want him to retire. When Froome and Poles rode clear of the chasing pack, Contador's lead was touch and go. As the gap came down, de Jong was forced to pull the car aside and let the duo pass. Froome's red jersey was the priority, but we were both flying that day, Poles recalls. We were getting closer and closer, and, for sure, I was thinking, if we take him, I can go for the win. Would it have been bad for the fans? I didn't think about it at the time, but we didn't catch him. Contador was the strongest, and Chris let me finish second. De Jong says there were no hard feelings that Froome and Poles were racing full gas, even if it would not have gone down well with the locals or Contador had they succeeded. It's a race, and the Anglaroo is a mythical stage, de Jong continues. Everyone wants to win there. The sprinters have the Champs-Élysées, the climbers have Vontu, Alpe d'Huez, the Anglaroo. They're the kind of stages that riders maybe only have one or two occasions to win in their careers. So, it's normal Sky pushed for the win. But in the end, Alberto held on, and it was great closure for his career. For Tomei, Contador's victory represented the end of an era, the cowboy racing style winning one last rodeo against the clinical tempo setting of a new world order in cycling. She says she will never forget the moment a jubilant Contador was mobbed by the media at the finish. I stood back and just looked at his mechanic, Faustino, who was crying his eyes out at the side of the tent, holding Alberto's bike, looking down at it. Proper ugly crying, the emotion of that moment overpowering him, a man who had stood by Alberto for most of his victories as a professional, a guy who was always pragmatic, poised and collected. Nothing fazed him. But that moment, he just stood there, compulsively crying, no high fives to teammates, no cheering or clapping, just a lonely figure overcome with emotion, a mechanic holding the last winning bike of Alberto. For some reason, that moment really touched me. It felt like it was the end of a chapter. I got goosebumps because at that moment I knew there would be no comeback, no un annual mass. This was it. Faustino knew it, and now I knew it. The last flight of El Pistolero bidding adieu in a blaze of glory, and I was there to witness it. For his part, de Jong recalls the relief and celebrations that day. Alberto was chasing that victory for the whole of Vuelta. And finally, on the last Saturday, he got the win, he says. I've never seen riders and staff enjoy a victory as much. We partied so hard, the bus needed new suspension afterwards. In the event, the retroactive doping ban for Austria's Stefan Denefel meant Contador was also awarded victory in stage 17 to Los Machucos, so the Spaniard would have got a farewell victory of a sort, even if Poles and Froome had caught him after all. With its maximum gradient of 28%, 
The addition of the Alto de los Machucos in the nearby Cantabrian mountains of northern Spain in 2017 was the Vuelta's response to the Giro's discovery of the Zoncalan and the latest assault in an ongoing skirmish for steepness between the two races, a battle that can be dated back to 1999 and the unveiling of the Onglaru. Whether or not the Onglaru will stand the test of time remains to be seen. But Contador's fairy tale triumph in 2017 reinvigorated the discovery of the blind visionary and ensured that the myth of the mammoth Asturian peak lives on. In 2020, the iconic climb returns for an eighth time to the Vuelta as the race looks for an heir to Contador's crown. 21 years after Jose Maria Jimenez emerged through the mist to write a thrilling first chapter of a story that shows no sign of concluding any time soon. This has been the final episode of the second season of Recycle by Eurosport. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. You can find me at Graham Wilgos. And you can find Pete looking forward to a well-earned holiday. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the latest cycling scenes from Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your favourite shows. Recycle wouldn't be possible without Eurosport Head of Digital Tom Adams, Cycling and Features Editor Tom Bennett and additional editing from Ola Fisayo. Recycle will be back for Season 3 in 2021, but do keep an eye out on your feed as we're aiming to bring you something special when the 2020 cycling season concludes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.